Good morning. Uh, a couple of announcements just to let you know the Lord is continuing to bless and open opportunities for us. Um, this uh, Thursday night, uh, if you're not doing anything, uh, check out the um, Heart of Health Live. I will be the host and Wendell will be the guest. So two of our class members will be on uh, this Thursday night on Heart of Health Live. If you don't know what channels that's on, go to heartwiseministries.org and they have all the different channels and you can also stream it live from their website. And that program will be going live on 3ABN in uh, January and that's the third largest Christian broadcasting uh, network in the world now. So it's going to be going live uh, in January So uh, on that network. It's already live on other stations in Cleveland, Chattanooga, and other places. And uh, I have uh, been invited to be a monthly guest on WRCB-TV Channel 3 um, once a month now on, on um, 3 Plus U. I was on this past Thursday, and I'll be on every month for the foreseeable future into the next year. Um, so that's, that's uh, another blessing that the Lord has provided for us. And... Um, Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that you will join us here today, uh, enlighten our minds with uh, the convictions of your kingdom and truth, and uh, join us together in uh, healing um, uh, of our, our characters. I also pray for leadership in the church, that you will uh, inspire them with uh, the principles of your kingdom, and that the message about you will lighten this world, and we can come soon. Uh, you can come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number eight in our quarterly, Growing in Christ, and the uh, title this week is The Church in Service to Humanity. When you hear the title, The Church in Service to Humanity, what comes to mind? Come into service. Come into service. And, and what, let me ask this, what does church service to humanity look like? What's it look like? Just throw, throw stuff out. There's lots of it, but throw stuff out. What does it look like when the church is serving humanity? Uh, okay, Adra. We're, um, so, so Samaritan Center, good. Helping the homeless, helping those that are needy, teaching people with Adra. What are you doing? Teaching people how to how to farm and how to have healthy water, and and then health principles. Uh, doing healing ministries. Okay, what else? What about um, spreading the, the correct gospel? Spreading the gospel. Beautiful, of course. The scripture is all about taking the gospel to the world, church and service, taking gospel to the world, um, helping the homeless, the, the, the orphans. Um, these are all things that the church does. Uh, social development, education. The church help with education. Is that, is that part of church ministry? Prison ministries. Is that part of church ministry? Um, you mentioned food banks, addiction programs, lots, lots of things. Now, the question is, all these things you've thrown out, church and ministry... What are the methods that they are revealing? What motive, what, what, what principles are in, in actively in practice in every one of those things you've described? Love. Yeah, a selfless love, giving, beneficence, right? Isn't this, you notice this principle uh, of, of service is all about giving to help another person. All these different manifestations have that same root principle flowing. Do you see it? So is the church then, is, is not the church to reveal God? Is that not what it's to do? In action, indeed. Now stay with me. If the church is to reveal God in our service, should the church require people in need to get an intercessor to plead with the church before we minister to them? Should the church require someone to make payment to them before we minister? Should the church seek to punish those who refuse to allow us to minister to them? 
Why would such actions be inappropriate for the church to do? Especially if the church teaches that God needs Christ to intercede with him, that Christ needed to make a payment of his blood to the Father, that God will punish all those who don't let God save them. Why shouldn't the church do this? In fact, if the church does believe the things I just said, those distortions about God, we can look through history and we find things like the Crusades, Inquisition, witch trials, burning at the stake, Sunday laws, Saturday laws. Saturday laws, yeah, yeah. Political activism, a.k.a. modern-day crusades. You don't think there's modern-day Christian crusades going on? Can, and, and, these, and these diversions, these, these things that divert away from the true ministry of the church, the Inquisition, the witch trials, the, the crusades, the, the Sunday laws, the Saturday laws, the political activism, can every one of those be presented as if the church is serving the betterment of mankind? Think that through. Think that through. What makes the difference in whether someone's serving the betterment of mankind? Oh, and conversely, how about all the other things? Um, preaching the gospel, health care, agriculture development, education, prison ministry. Can all those things be done for political empowerment and personal advancement? Yeah. So what makes the difference in whether the church is actually serving God's cause or the church is serving another cause? What, what makes the difference? Freedom. Freedom. And any others? Motive. Motive. Oh, I like what you're saying. Motive. Motive, which leads to the method of our madness. I had a Methodist educator give a sermon once uh, who was describing that he was leading a group of students back in the time of the, 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 the Cold War into the Soviet Union. They were going in and they had punt, packed a bunch of, of Bibles into their suitcase to take into the Soviet Union to, to give away. And as they were coming to the border crossing and they were going to have to go through customs there and be inspected, they were all the, the students started discussing, well, what do we say? Do, do we lie? Do we lie? Do we, do we, do we tell them we have Bibles? Do, do, what do we say? And, and this Methodist uh, educator said, in a sermon, we cannot win battles for God by using Satan's methods. Brilliant. Just think that through. You can't win battles for God using Satan's methods. Isn't it brilliant? How often has a church gone awry because they want to do the right thing? We want to get Bibles. They need those Bibles. But they practice Satan's methods to achieve it. See, Satan is much more concerned about the method than the specific act. He doesn't care which day you worship on as long as the method and mode of worship is forced, coerced, obligatory, like those who put Christ on the cross and wanted him down by sunset so they could keep that day. He didn't care what day. He cared about method, about motive, about principle of action, about what was going on in the heart. See, once freedom is violated, as you said, freedom, Powerful. Once freedom is violated, either by an external governmental force or, more commonly, by one's belief in a punitive God, obey me or I will kill you, then right behavior, get, get your mind around what I'm saying here, once freedom's violated and you're doing it out of a, a threat and coercion, then right behavior results in destructive destruction of character. 
Just meditate on that thought for a minute. If you're doing the right behavior out of a coercive obligation, it destroys the character. This is what happened to the Jews in Christ's day. I mean, they were, you know, Pharisee of Pharisees. They were doing all the right behaviors. But what was the method or motive for the behavior? It destroys character. And, and the devil doesn't care if you do the right behavior. In fact, he loved it. He preferred, he would much prefer his followers to look like the Pharisees than to look like Druids. Much prefer it. Because he's going to, how many, how many people in our society, there are some, but the preponderance of people, will he get more people with a satanic cult or more people with a pious, righteous church group? It's a toss up. <laughs> well, I don't think it is. I think that uh, there's very few people actually join the satanic cult. There are some, but not many. Most people don't want to go there. Even the worldly don't want to go there. But many people get pulled into Phariseeism. This is why many young people leave the church. They cannot separate. They cannot separate method from action, from deed, from particular doctrine. They can't, they can't separate the method. Their, their God-given judgment rebels against the ungodly method of coercion, of force, of dictation, of pressure or else. And they threw out the whole kit and caboodle because they can't separate the motive from the method and then the method from the act. We must present the truth in harmony with God's character and methods. That's the challenge, to help separate those. Thus, as Christians, when we consider service to humanity, we must think beyond just the specifics to the method and principles we're applying as we serve humanity, seems to me. So when you think about godly service and the service that we can do as a group, how can we, what, 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 what could we put at the top agenda, the, the very pinnacle of service? What's the greatest service that we could do for humanity, if you had to list one? Give your life. Give your life for what cause, though? For what purpose? To achieve what end? You can give your life for lots of reasons, right? So, yes, selfless, self-sacrifice, of course, is the manifestation of godliness, but for what purpose? There are people who strap bombs on themselves right now to give their life to kill Jews and to kill Christians and to blow up buildings, and they give their lives. We wouldn't call that a great witness for God, would we? So, I know you're not wrong. I just want to say... It's a witness for a type of a God. It is a witness for a type of a God. They are doing it in the name of their God, aren't they? Yeah. So, but, so, so... What is the greatest goal that we would want to achieve in self-sacrificial love? What do we, what do we want uh, the service to, to attain? Yes. To help them see who God truly is. Oh, well said. Someone to trust. The number one pinnacle is to reveal God. Christ himself said his mission on earth was what? To reveal the Father. The The number one service we can do is to rightly reveal God before men. And the reason this is number one, even before the helping of the suffering and all these other things, not that the helping of the suffering is not important, but because the healing, bringing people back to a knowledge of God leads to eternal life. What good does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? What good is it those people who Christ healed when he was on earth from all types of maladies, leprosy, diseases of all kinds? What good is that if they didn't accept him as personal savior? 
They live an extra 35 years on earth and are lost for eternity. What, what good is that? You follow what I'm saying here? So, there are then, so once we have our mind focused, what we want to do is we want to reveal as clearly as possible the truth about God's character, his methods, his nature, his principles, the way his government operates. We want to make that the, the primary service we can make for men. Then there's all types of ways to achieve that goal, methods, uh, 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 outlets to do that. Yes? It begins, though, with us living right in our own lives and ourselves. That's the beginning, before we try to reveal it to anybody else. Do you hear what she said? And, and see, that in the Old Testament, the Lord was always telling his people to live right, to do right, and then the world will come to them to see why they're doing, you know, prospering and doing well and in, in peace. And, and so this is how I feel like we need to live right first. And then the second step is to reach out to others. There's no question. You, if you don't have it, you can't share it. If you don't have a knowledge and experience of Jesus Christ, you can't share a knowledge and experience of Jesus Christ. And, and I'll tell you even, you, what, what you share, <clears throat> you share what you have. If you have a distorted and twisted knowledge of Jesus Christ, you share a distorted and twisted knowledge of Jesus Christ. You have practices that you practice in life that are unhealthy. You share those practices. Does anybody remember? I'm going to give my age here a little bit, but as a kid, anybody remember the days when doctors would... You go to your doctor and your doctor's puffing away? Okay? I mean, not practicing healthy principles, are they? They're trying to get you healthy, but what are they doing? Okay? Yeah. So I think that's right. We have to bring into our own life these principles. And thus, that goes into the point. How do we share the gospel? There's teaching and preaching, but there's also living, isn't there? There's a living witness, how we treat people. And so the ministry, the, the healing ministry, the healing arts are the right arm of the gospel. Why, why has that statement never been made? What does it mean if people say the, the practice of the healing arts is the right arm of the gospel? Why, why is that the case? Why did Jesus spend the majority of his time healing rather than preaching? Because people can't hear not Partially. Partially. That's, there's truth in that. He was revealing God's methods and principles of healing. Exactly right. I mean, this is, when, when we talk about law in here, we often talk about the difference between natural law, laws upon which life is created to operate upon, and impose law like governments put upon people. When you practice the healing arts, which laws are you working with? Doctors can't get people well in violation of the laws of health. You can't do it. You can only get people well by operating in harmony with those laws and moving people as far as and best as we can to live in harmony with those laws and healing takes place in harmony with the laws that God built life to operate upon. It doesn't matter the arbitrary stuff whether your insurance pays or doesn't pay, whether the hospital's willing to admit you or not, whether you follow hospital policy or not, it doesn't matter. Smoking's still going to be unhealthy. Or quitting's going to be healthy. You see? The natural... So Christ spent his time healing as a, as a demonstration, an object lesson, that God's government and the problems of sin are violations of the very protocols upon which life are built, and he came to fix it, to literally transform it. So how else do we... Give this witness of the gospel. 
obviously helping people need, giving, so forth. But I, I think perhaps the most difficult, the most difficult that, that I, I thought of, maybe there's more, how we conduct ourselves when we're under attack and being mistreated. That's the hardest for me. I can tell you, it's the hardest. And, and, and at that time, we have an opportunity to witness something too, don't we? And you look at how Christ conducted himself when he was mistreated and attacked. And, and, and the early church martyrs, when they were at burning at the stake and, and being fed to the lions and so forth, they were singing hymns in it. And this is what spread the gospel so radically because the Romans in the, in the Colosseum were terrified of death. And here are these people at peace and they're not afraid. And, and like, what, what do they know? How come they're not terrified? Why aren't they freaking out like everyone else does in the arena? And their witness led people to ask questions which led to spreading of the gospel. What are ways that we are serving humanity with our class? And I want to specifically put a question to you guys. What more can we do? And is there something that you have had a burden on your heart that you would like to do to help spread the gospel that, that you haven't you know, had opportunity to do? If it's something you'd like to do and add to what we're doing, tell us, share with us. Hey, I'd like to, I'd like to, to add this to what the ministry is doing. Notice I said something that you're going to do, not something you're going to bring to us for us to do but something that you're going to say, hey, I want to start doing this for the ministry. If you have something in mind like that, let us know. I think that you sharing your personal testimonies is the greatest witness sometimes, especially if you're in a situation like I am now where I don't know who's Christian, I don't know what denomination, or that doesn't matter. But if I can share with them things that have happened in my life and how God has led and help through prayer, then to me, that's helping to spread the gospel. No, I, I, I love that. And in fact, uh, this personal witness idea, it's been suggested, you know, we're going to have the 3BN going live, as I mentioned, in January. We're also going to have the commercial time. We can put commercials on, our commercials. So it's been suggested that maybe we have a commercial where, some, where a person or two or three, because it's going to be one minute long, it can be very long, tells a personal testimony about how this class is and this message and this perspective is, is, is taken them from a place where they were, were not at peace to a, a healthy relation with God and restored their, their confidence in Christ. Uh, maybe if somebody's interested in doing that, let us know. We're going to work on developing a couple. So that's great. Yeah. I can hardly put your book down. Okay. And I went, how can we get that? I'd like to give those out as a Christmas gift. We've got them right out here. Take some with you. Take some with you. That's what they're there for. If you need some more, let me know. Our class for local sharing, and I, I hate to say to our online people, this is not available to the people online. This is just available here locally. But we do have books that could it be this simple that we have, uh, that the ministry has purchased for, the, for that very purpose for this class in our community to share. So if you need some, let me know. We actually have quite a few of them that we can distribute here locally. Okay, so yes, yes. I have two things. One is um, we weren't meant to live in isolation, and it's very biblical to be in community and have a church family. And so I think, first of all, as a group, we need to be family and show love to each other. And then secondly, we need to actually speak so much louder than words. We need to act on what we're talking about and take it out into the community and, and let our actions be thought of in our words, just like Jesus healed people and didn't preach as much we should do and maybe talk. Not, not that talking is bad, but do more than we talk. I agree. So if you have some good ideas along those lines, how we can coalesce together and work together more, more effectively, I'd like to hear that too. I think it would be very powerful, especially in our community here. 
I'm, I'm, I've got some ideas floating around my head, but they haven't quite coalesced yet. Yes? I'd like to see a discussion group start so that we can share what we're learning in SAP school, but you have so much to share with us, it's hard to discuss afterwards. It would be nice maybe to, I don't know if the room is available afterwards or if we can meet another time or some other place. In fact, I even thought about um, asking to meet at the College Dill Church in one of their Sabbath school rooms as a discussion group on biblical things or whatever, and somehow working our way back into the church that way. I think that's a great idea. I won't be there, but no. uh, because 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 I, not because I wouldn't want to be there, because I want you guys to talk, and I tend to talk too much. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, and, and 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 you know something we watched last week. We watched last week the class uh, live, and, and it was very, very good. And Christy made the observation, there's a whole lot more class participation when you're not there. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so that's why I said I wouldn't be there, because you want a discussion group, and I want you guys to talk. So I wasn't trying to, d- to put it down in any way. Okay? All right, first paragraph, um, it's in the lesson, it says, For many, church isn't what it used to be, whatever that was. For some, uh, some people even talk about the churchless, uh, a churchless Christianity, a concept that is self-contradictory. Others rail against organized religion. What is better, disorganized religion? The Bible teaches clearly about the importance of the church. It's not an option. It's a crucial component in the plan of salvation. No wonder then that as the great controversy unfolds, Satan works so hard against it, especially because the church is one important means by which sinners are brought into contact with God's offer of salvation. And, you know, I read that and I thought, wait a minute. Does Satan work against organized religion? No. Who le- in, in, in Old Testament times, who was it that led the people into apostasy, apostasy most, most frequently? Was it the soldiers? Or the tax collectors? Or the doctors? Or the artisans? Or was it the priests? Uh, who led the people to reject and crucify Christ? Was it the Romans? The prostitutes? The tax collectors? Or, or was it the, the leaders of the organized church? Who led the nations to military conflict in the Dark Ages? Who led out in persecuting the reformers? Who does the Bible teach? Who do we believe that the Bible prophesies in the future will organize the world to oppose God's remnant on earth? Organized religion. So I'm not convinced that Satan is opposed to organized religion at all. I think he loves organized religion. I think he uses organized religion. What is he against? He's against the truth about God's character of love and God's methods of love. That's what he's against. So when people rail against organized religion, could it be that they're actually railing against how organized religion gets misdirected and into misrepresenting God and abusing power? Could that be what they're railing against? Yeah, Wendell. But that is not the church. No, that's not the church. You know, organized religion is just that, organized religion. The church is the church universal in which God has members from within organized religion, but also amongst all the rest. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think there's something that's coming up in the lesson about that very question. Um, about I'll probably not get to it, so I'll just say it now. There's a, a quote in the lesson about the church. Um, hmm. 
I guess I'll have to come to it because I want to read it. But it's, it's along those lines. What constitutes the church? Is it a denomination? Yes. I'm so enjoying this conversation. One of the toughest questions that anyone asks me, and I was shuddered since living in this part of the country, is, hey, Doc, do you attend church? And I'll always say, no, I, I can't do that. And they'll say, why not? I thought you were a Christian. I said, I don't understand your question. We are the church, the body of Christ. We're church here. We're church here. And, and these puzzled looks, as Wendell was talking about, defining church, the body. I, I think that's beautifully said. It's so difficult, yet we're, we're looking at having to change mindsets. So is there a difference between what you're describing, the body of Christ, the church, the ecclesia, the, the people that, that have the spirit indwelling them, pulling them ever into a closer unity of affection, and an organized denomination? Unfortunately, yes. Or are they, are they synonyms and equal? They could be, and they should be. Oh, they yes. Aren't yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, first paragraph in Sunday's lesson, it says, when we speak about the nature of something, we are usually interested in its origins, function, and purpose. Besides providing several images to depict the church, the Bible uses a particular word in reference to it, ecclesia, which means called out or called forth. In secular Greek life, the word was used primarily to describe a group of citizens who had been called out of their homes into a public place for an assembly or gathering. The New Testament uses it in a general sense. From what was the church called out? They were called out of darkness. Darkness. Metaphorically meaning? Um, Not actual photons. Sin and selfishness. Sin and selfishness, okay. And lies and distortions and false conceptions and fears and self-centeredness, as you're saying. Yeah, it's called out of that. And and it took on certain manifestations. There's certain organized manifestations of that darkness. Paganism. Mm -hmm. Agnosticism. Hinduism. Mm -hmm. Judaism. Was Judaism darkness by the time Christ came? Yeah. Called out for what purpose? Called out to achieve what? Was there a purpose they were called out? For what purpose? To declare the praises of him who called them. And that Bible quotation means that we get together and form choirs and sing? (laughs) We can do that, sure, but is it more than that? We talk about the character of the one who, who saved us, the one who healed us, and we demonstrate in our own lives that character. And what does it often say is the highest form of flattery or praise? Imitation. Ah, so is this how we do it? Be like Christ, right? Imitate Christ and so forth. Isn't isn't this the way we give those praises? The lesson states in the third paragraph that the Jews were called out to be God's special people. For what purpose were the Jews called? Were they called to exclusive salvation? (laughs) Did you have to be a Jew to experience salvation before Christ came? You know, that's actually a, 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 a awakening thought to a lot of Christians. But it's, it's true, you're right. No, you didn't have to be. So then what was their purpose? Reveal the truth about God. To, in, in what form and fashion? You're going to reveal the truth about God for a purpose of preparing the world for? Messiah. The Messiah. And did God bless them with certain tools to accomplish that? Yes. He gave them a theater and a script. And costumes and roles. And they enacted a play. Get your mind around this. The Old Testament entire system was a play, a drama. Just when you go to a theater, when you watch a movie, 
It's an enactment of something. It's not reality. What you saw in the Old Testament, you read the Old Testament, it's not reality. It's, an, it's a drama. And, and why was it? So, so when you look at some of the appears to be harsh responses by God, what happens? What is the, who's the director of this play? Christ. God, exactly right. And, and in, in a movie today, if an actor has his script and in the middle of the play decides to go off script and just do what he wants, what does the director do? <laughs> Cut. Stop. Let's start over. And if he refuses to go by the script, what happens? What does the director do? Fires him. Okay? God was firing people that would not go by the script. They would not fire. You didn't have to be part of the script. Remember, you could leave. They, they could have walked away and left their, and left their roots and gone off somewhere else. They didn't have to stay with the 12 tribes. People came in, Ruth, Rahab, other people came in, but they didn't have to. But if they came in and said, hey, I want to be part of the play. Hey, you got, you got, a, you got a role for me to play? You got to go by the script. You be part of the play, you got to follow the script. But that script did not determine salvation. You weren't saved by keeping the script. It was just a script. This is why in Matthew, Jesus said, if you'd understood what it said, that he, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't criticize the innocent. I desire a, or in Micah 6, 6 through 8, what should I come before the Lord? Should I come with a thousand rivers of oil, with 10,000 lambs? Should I offer the firstborn for the sins of my soul? No, he has shown you, O man, what is good, to love mercy, to walk humbly, and to... Uh, no, to, to love, to justice. seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. He was always wanting a change of heart. Always wanting to change the heart. And the script was just a tool to teach us the plan, pointing us to the day the Messiah comes to achieve what we couldn't achieve. It was just a script. So, but they were called. They were called by God, right? No question. They were his people. They were blessed with all these tools. Then what did Jesus mean then when he 2,000 years ago told those people with all those tools who were called by God for this purpose, he said to them that it, you search the world for a convert and when you convert one over to this system, you've made him twice the son of hell. They misunderstood and twisted what they were doing. So, but think, but, but think, think it through with me. Where are they calling them from? They're calling them from paganism. Okay, you've got people in paganism being called into Judaism of Christ's day, and he said, you're, you're putting them further down into hell. You're darkening their minds further than what they already were in paganism. Wow. Think that through. How could that possibly be? What might, and I want to be specific, what were some of the things specifically done 2,000 years ago that would cause people who don't know about God, who worship some pagan construct of God, worship Baal, worship Jupiter, worship the, 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 the goddesses of Rome, uh, converted into Judaism, and Christ says their minds are further darkened. What were they doing that actually darkened their minds further? Yes. Well, one thing they were doing is like if I come to you and you're a physician and you're giving me something and you're telling me this is going to heal you, and I say, oh, phew, I got the right remedy, but it's a sham, I'm still going to feel like I've got the right remedy. Okay, so it's going to... Blocking the way for them to really find the truth. So it's going to false security. How about... Yes. The sacrificial system looked like appeasement to them. Ah, so I like this, okay? So making God look arbitrary. Uh, Making God uh, look like uh, someone who needs to be appeased. Arbitrary, Sabbath, arbitrary test of obedience. Um, God is a a 
a respecter of people. He is a racist. He prefers Jews over everyone else. Was this taught 2,000 years ago? Um, God. And they burdened people with a whole bunch of extra stuff that God never, never intended them to be burdened with and put that as the same level of what God had commanded them to do. So God is punitive. Don't do, do all this stuff or I'll punish you. God is unforgiving. God is unforgiving. Yes. God is unfair. He cheats. Go to the temple and exchange your thing for the temple, your coin for the temple coin. You're going to get ripped off. God's a cheater. Yes. Essentially, they're taking people who don't know God and giving them a false concept of God. Even worse than the one they already had. This is the point. God is a manipulator. He gives loopholes. Corban, we don't have to then fulfill our responsibilities to our parents. We can keep everything for ourselves. God's selfish. God is a sexist. He demeans and abuses women, requiring them to subordinate under the rulership of men. We don't have that problem in the church today, do we? Yes. They also taught that God punished you if you did something wrong. So if you were sick or or anything, that, leprosy. That was, that was the hand of God against you. Cursed by God. Yes. Great. Pardon. You were, if you were rich, that meant you were being blessed by God. If you poor, I guess that meant you weren't. So do we as a people, as a Christian body, struggle with any of these same distortions today? Could we actually go out into the world and hold an evangelistic series and convert an atheist into our Christianity and actually make them further from God, darkening their minds worse? This is a sad reality, guys. This is a wake-up call. We need to really look in the mirror. I actually, uh, on, on a Facebook forum, there's a person that I correspond with who was talking about how her church is having an evangelistic series right now out in the West Coast, and she's very concerned this is actually happening because the presentation of God given is the classic presentation uh, coming with wrath and anger and the beasts and all this kind of stuff. And uh, she, she just sits and bites her lip because it's hurting her heart to even hear what's being said. Last... What about the what about the gospel of prosperity that is so rampantly running through? God intends for you to be prosperous, wealthy. Yeah, that's another yes. Tuesday's lesson. Let's jump to Tuesday. First paragraph in Tuesday's lesson. It says the church as the body of Christ means that the church is to do what Christ would do if he were still here on earth bodily. Get the mind around that idea. We're to do what Christ would do if he was here bodily. It is for this reason that the church as an assembly has been called out. The church does not simply have a mission. The church is mission. That's what it says. So it's making the direct comparison between the church's mission and Christ's mission. So let's first ask the question, what was Christ's mission? Well, to reveal the Father. John 17, 4 through 6. I'm going to read John 17, 4 through 6. This is Christ speaking uh, in prayer to his Father. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Notice what he said he just did. I completed the work. Glorify me, and now he's going to say what he did. I revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave me, gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. So what he said his work was. I've, I've finished the work, and what have I done? I've revealed you. Is our job to reveal God, the truth about him? It's part of it, isn't it? Well, I was, you know, I, I do a lot of trolling through uh, various uh, um, materials, and I was trolling through some 19th century literature, and, uh, and a, a magazine called Youth Instructor. In 1897, I came across this article, and 
I wanted to go through it with you to see what the church was teaching uh, more than 100 years ago and see if we've continued on that path or have we drifted from that path. Because the title of this particular article is Christ's Mission to Earth. Christ's Mission to Earth. What's the mission? It's important that we each study to know the reason of the life of Christ in humanity and what it means to us, why the Son of God left the courts of heaven, why he stepped down from a position as commander of the heavenly angels who came and, and went at his bidding, why he clothed his divinity with humanity in lowliness and human, uh, humility came to the world as our Redeemer. Do we know why? Do we have an explanation? Do the reasons make sense? Does it make a difference what reason we give as to why he came? Will it make a difference? Second paragraph. It was the marvel of the heavenly host that Christ should come to earth and do as he did, that his life here should be one of poverty in such incomparable contrast with his glory in the heavenly courts. He might have come attended by the angelic throng, for the heavenly angels would have regarded themselves as honored to be his bodyguard in serving and worshiping him. But we read that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Christ's entire life was one of self-denial. He received of his father that he might impart to others. What's being described in that? Is there a law being described right there? Can anybody tell me what that law is? God's law. And what, what, and God's law and what's being described? Flesh it out. Circulation. The law of giving, the law of beneficence, the law of circulation, the law of love. Love seeks not its own or love seeks not itself. It's the law of giving. Yes, he, he received from the Father in order to impart to others. Impartation. The man who waters himself will be, um, you know, uh, what's that passage in Proverbs? The, the one who gives water will also have his thirst quenched. Yeah. Giving we receive. The more you give, the more you shall receive. And what did Christ, in receiving from the Father in order to impart, what did he reveal about his nature, his character? Who did he reveal? Was it necessary for the earth and for even the angelic host in heaven to see this revelation of God's character in, yeah. in Christ? What does it say in Colossians 1? It says that all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. Did you realize heavenly things we're reconciled at the cross. Something needs to be... So next paragraph. Before the universe of heaven, Christ condescended to take upon him the form of humanity and stand among the lowly ones of earth that he might reach them where they were and by precept and example teach them that though among the poor and oppressed, they might be pure and true and noble. Why did he become human? To, to, to reach who? Why was it necessary for him to come down to our level? There's an old song. He came down to our level because? We could understand him. Because we couldn't get up to his, right? Yeah, so we could understand him. Uh, once, once Adam sinned, could we comprehend what God was truly like without him coming to reveal it? It was beyond us at that point. We couldn't do it. So he came to show us the reality. He came to reveal to the world that the life and character need not become, get your mind around this, think, think if you think this is true. Think if Christianity actually says this today, or does Christianity says, you know what, there is no victory over sin. You'll continue to sin. Sin you'll continue to live in for, until the day Christ comes. There is, this, listen what this says. It says, he came to reveal to the world that the life and character need not become contaminated amid poverty and lowliness. The lily that rests upon the bottom of the lake may be surrounded with weeds and unsightly debris, yet unsullied it opens its fragrant white blossom to the sunlight. It strikes its channel stem deep, 
uh, down through the mass of rubbish to the pure sands beneath, refusing everything that would defile it, gathers to itself only those properties that will develop into the spotless, fragrant flower. Do we believe that this is possible for us? That we can live in a world with all types of rubbish and defilement and sin around us, and we can sink our heart into Christ and draw from him purity and holiness to live a victorious life? Or do we believe that it's commonly taught that no, you can't have victory, you can't have transformation of character, you can't have purity of heart, you will continue to live in sin, you can only get legal pardon stamped by your record book in heaven. Do you see the big lie of penal substitution? It's all about a legal process happening in a heavenly inquiry going on over your record books while you continue to live a destructive life. It's really warped. The gospel message, if you read the whole scripture, it's all about a new heart and a right spirit and the mind of Christ, having the heart circumcised, having the heart of stone removed, the heart of flesh put in, writing the law upon the hearts and minds. The old is gone, the new has come, recreated, reborn, regenerated. Everything is literal, transforming, renewal, recreative. Do you believe it or have you, have you gotten so dull that we just think that's all metaphorical, pie in the sky, wish for another day? Continuing on. We would ask you, young men and women, will you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Will you consider the life of Christ? He was a life of perfect obedience. His was a life of perfect obedience. He came to live the law of God in human nature. Well, what's that mean? He came to, now think this one through. What did Christ reveal in his life about God's holy law? Is the obedience of Christ different than that of the Pharisees who prided themselves on obedience to the law? Were they proclaiming obedience to two different laws? Were they proclaiming obedience to two different laws or were they proclaiming to both be obeying God's law? But was there a difference in what you saw in their obedience? What was the difference? This is critical. This takes you right to the heart of it. Yes. Of the heart, the, the mouth speaks, but the life lives. And so he truly was in union with God, and they were not. I, I'm going to suggest to you that they both, Christ not only advocated living the law of God, he actually lived the law of God. That the Pharisees proclaimed and advocated living the law of God, but they actually were living the counterfeit, Satan's distortion of the law of God. Um, and we're gonna, we'll get to it a little bit further here. Next paragraph. It says, The subject of obedience evolves eternal interest. Through his misrepresentation of God, Satan had made the law appear as arbitrary, enforced by God to keep his creatures from higher education in the knowledge of good and evil. Think that through. Satan's representation is a distortion of God that presents him as arbitrary and one who enforces his law. What kind of law are we talking about now? An imposed law, like a Roman emperor. Set out rules, keep the rules, and as the imposer of rules, I'm not going to enforce obedience to the rules. This is Satan's lie. This is what the Pharisees believed. This is what Christianity has accepted for, for millennia. Yes? So sin is anything that will destroy us. Uh, not, not quite. Um, well, I guess, yes, I guess that's true. Because it could be extra. I thought you meant personal sin. No, yes. Yes. 
Because it's sinful for somebody to destroy another person. That's sin, even though you're innocent. It was sin for what they did to Christ, but Christ was without sin. So that's sin in action, yes. So you may not be in sin. You may not be doing anything sinful, but somebody could be doing something sinful that destroys you. At least your physical body. But they can't, remember, Matthew 10, 28, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body, but cannot destroy the soul. Greek word for soul is psyche, your mind, your individuality. So if I'm participating in sin, though, that will destroy me. That will, that will initially damage, and if not remedied, eventually destroy you. Yes, not instantaneously, but yes. Exactly right. Starts the, starts the process. Of- it sears the character, warps the conscience, hardens the heart, causes us to be more fear-based, more self-centered. Uh, it, it makes us callous. We can't comprehend truth. The things of God become offensive and, and we become hostile to them. The carnal mind is enmity to God and doesn't like it. Okay, So yes, it actually dwarps us to the point that we would spit in God's face and, and, and try and crucify him. And Tim? Yes. I think of... I think of marriage, and I think the Bible uses the term marriage a lot because it helps us understand. I'm married, and I can obey the rules of marriage. I can be there in body. I can act, do all the right actions. But if I don't love my husband, and then if I love him, the rest of it doesn't really seem like rules. It seems more like this is what I'd like to do to make him happy. This is and, what and, I'd and, like to do to take care of him. And further, when you love him and you make a mistake... There's no harm. Because it was innocent, there was no evil intended. Trust hasn't broken down. There's grace that covers that. Human mistakes are not injurious when, they're, it, it, when it's done in love. Oh, you know what? I, I got the wrong. You, you wanted me to pick this up. I, I, I got the wrong one. But thanks for stopping for me. We have to take it back. But I mean, all kinds of mistakes, right? Drop the, drop the glass and break the thing. All kinds of mistakes. When, it's, when, when our heart's in love, though, we, we, we overlook that, don't we? Yes. Okay, keep going. Um, it, was, it was this knowledge of evil that the Lord did not wish our first parents to obtain. He wanted them to be... And what was the cause of that knowledge of evil? Misrepresentations of God. He, uh, it was this knowledge he did not want them to obtain. He wanted them to be wise through an understanding only that which it was in their happiness to know. But by the disobedience of Adam, the floodgates of woe were opened upon our world. It was then that Christ offered himself as man's substitute and surety and consented to come to earth and meet the tempter who, through falsifying the character and purposes of God, had caused the ruin of our first parents. What caused the ruin of our first parents? Notice lies about God. Who did Christ come to confront? Notice, he came to do battle with whom? Satan. Christ did not come to appease his father to do battle with God, who's a righteous judge who must punish and stand between us and and wear him down or, or ward him off. That is not why he came. The father was in the son, reconciling the world to himself. Christ was the father's means, avenue, and vehicle through which the father could achieve the father's purpose in saving mankind. The father is for us. Wendell. Going back to your text of Matthew ten twenty eight, who is the one who will able to destroy body and soul in hell? Yes, it is not God. And that, and that, go ahead, I agree with you. Go on. You know, it is the devil who, through lies and distortion, is able to destroy us. I would even I would even make it more personal. The one who's able to destroy your soul is you. 
The devil's the one who tempts you and leads you astray and does all the things to get you to do it. But ultimately, the devil can't do that without our consent. It's not God, though. It's not God. And most people look at that text and have so misconstrued God's character that they see him as the one who is destroying body and soul in hell. That's right. And most of the, new tra- most of the translations actually capitalize the, one, the O, the, one, the O in the word one. So they make it actually uh, your mind to, to go that way. We've got to move on. got to move on. Okay. Adam received the commandments of God. Notice, Adam received the commandments of God. Really? What does that mean? And disobeyed them. He received the law of love. And the commandments are the law of love. That's what it is. And in this, he became disloyal to God and dishonored him and was classed as one of the first, one with the first apostate. In yielding to temptation, he forfeited the light in favor of God. Well, what's that mean? Well, what, what does forfeit mean? In tying weights on his legs and jumping in the ocean, he forwarded the light of the sun in the favor of oxygen. <laughs> That's what it means. In choosing to deviate from God's design for life, he forfeited. He took himself to a place where those blessings were not available to him anymore. He forfeited them. But though Adam broke away from, it, from its claims, the law of God did not lose one jot or tittle of its force. The Lord did not change one precept of his law in order to meet man in his fallen condition. Why not? After you jump overboard with weights on your legs and you're floating down through the ocean, the law of respiration doesn't lose one weight of its force, does it? In fact, you become more acutely aware of how forceful it is. This is God's law. Life is built to operate in harmony with it. Deviations from it have a destructive uh, power over us that we can't remedy ourselves. This is why Christ came. But in order to meet its claims, the Lord made an offering for sin in the person of Jesus Christ, thus demonstrating to the world the immutability of the law. What does it mean, meet its claims? What are the claims of the law? What does the law claim? What does it require? What does it demand? What does the law of respiration demand? This is very simple. So this is out of a book called Desire of Ages 762. I thought it said it nicely. It says, the law requires righteousness a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ coming to earth as a man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. They, thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is filled in the believer of Christ, and God can be both just and the justifier of him who believes in him. Do you see what's what's being described here? Substitution. Substitution for what purpose? What's actually being achieved? Christ came to... Develop in a human brain the perfection of godly character that no human could do. And now his, his life is the life of man. Adam in Eden, you know, all human life's directly an extension of Adam's life in Eden. Eve was an extension of Adam, taken from a rib. All human life extends out of Adam. Christ came and tied in to that tree, that life tree. And Christ overcame the infection of sinfulness that he took upon himself. Even though he knew no sin, he became sin. For what purpose? For achieving human perfection. He achieved it. 
He achieved human perfection. None of us did. And thus he becomes the source of salvation. It says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, that once he was made perfect, get your mind around that, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Once he achieved this, human perfection, then the Holy Spirit takes what Christ has achieved, reproduces it in us. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. I'm suggesting this is a reality, guys. It's something you can partake now. That you can, as Peter says, be a partaker of what? The divine nature. And we have been duped with this other gospel that tells us it's not happening here and now. You can't partake of Christ today. You can only partake uh, partake of his legal payment. You can take, take, take that and you can have that applied to a record book in heaven. But you can't in your heart and mind partake of it to actually experience transformation now. No, no, no. Don't even try for that. Don't even accept. And, and we're, this is the lie that keeps the whole Christian world asleep. And so a couple of scriptures to support this whole construct. We already read John 17, 4 through 6, that Christ came in his mission. We're talking about the mission of Christ to reveal the truth about the Father. He, uh, Hebrews two fourteen that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. Um, first Timothy, second Timothy 1, 9 and 10, that by his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. And first John 3, 8, by his death he destroyed the devil's work. And the devil's work was was twofold, lies about God, but, but secondarily, or even maybe even primarily through those lies, to destroy the image of God in man and put the image of Satan where God's image should be. And Christ came to destroy that work, to put God's image back. I think uh, Margaret said before class something very, very nicely. She said, um, remember when they were talking about taxing and so forth? He said, show me a coin. Show me a coin. Whose image is on it? Caesar's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Caesar's image is on a coin. Margaret pointed out God's image is in us. We're to render ourselves to God. That's where his image is. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, and that's exactly right. That's exactly what we're to do. And that's what Christ came to achieve. So if this is the gospel, if this was presented, this was presented over 100 years ago, why is it that the truth of God's character as understood in Christ is so poorly understood today in the church. I was doing some more trolling. And I came across this, and I've got to tell you, it was humbling to me to read this. And I prayed, I actually stopped and prayed that I would not allow myself to, to, to be like this. Um, because sometimes I'm tempted to be just like this. Christ, has, Christ had many truths to give to his disciples of which he could not speak because they did not advance with the light that was flashed upon the Levitical laws and sacrificial offerings. They did not embrace the light, advance with the light, and follow on to still greater brightness as providence should lead them. And for the same reason, Christ's disciples of 1897, Christ's disciples of 2012, do not comprehend important matters of truth. So dull has the comprehension of even those who teach the truth to others that many things cannot be opened to them until they reach heaven. Wow. It ought not to be so. But as men's minds become narrow, they think they know it all and set one stake after another in points of truth of which they have only a glimpse. 
They close their minds as though they were no more for them to learn. And should the Lord attempt to lead them on, they would not take up with the increased light. They cling to the spot where they see a little glimmer of light when it is only a link in the living chain of truths and promises to be studied. They know very little of what it means to follow in the footsteps of Christ. The harmonious relation of truth, the like links in a chain, will just as fast as the mind is quickened by the Spirit of God to comprehend and in humbleness of mind appropriate it, be dispensed to others. The truth which the mind grasps as truth is capable of constant expansion and new developments. While while beholding it, the truth is seen in all its bearings in the life and character and becomes more clear and certain and beauteous. As the mind grasps it in its preciousness, it becomes elevated, ennobled, and sanctified. That's uh, manuscript releases, 16 manuscript release 123. But um, what did you think of that? Wasn't that powerful? Beautifully said. You know, it says right in Acts, I have much to tell you, but you can't bear it. It's not that I'm not willing. I'd, I'd like to tell you a bunch of stuff. But your minds aren't ready. And I pray that that doesn't happen to us. As I've said in our class many, many times, we never want to arrive at the truth. Because when you arrive, you sit down those stakes and you dig in and defend. We want to be lovers of truth who are always seeking to advance and grow. And whatever we know today, we want to see how it can expand tomorrow. Because God is infinite, we're finite, and through all eternity future, we will just keep growing every day. I mean, think about the eternity future when all things are made new. Aren't you looking forward to the new discovery of every day something new is going to just wow you? Isn't that going to be fun? Do we lose the wow of new discovery here because we now know it all? Yeah. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of infinite truth, infinite love, infinite wisdom, and you operate a universe. You've created and constructed a universe in harmony with your own nature, and you actually give your intelligent beings freedom to think for ourselves. We ask that your Holy Spirit will guide our minds because our minds are infected with so many misunderstandings and distortions and we have our own uh, internal conflicts that we struggle with, Lord. We, we want to disentangle our minds to see the, the true nature of your kingdom. We want our hearts transformed. We want to be partakers of your divine nature. And we pray that you will empower us with clarity that we can go out and live the truth, speak the truth, and share the truth that you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.